All right, it's a pleasure to see all of your wonderful faces. Well, let us go before the Lord and ask for his help this morning, which is not just our tradition, it is our heart's greatest desire. Uh, it is so easy for uh, things in the life of the body, once they get a lot of laps around the track, should become somewhat mundane to us. Hopefully that never happens to um, prayer for us. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we need you this morning. We need you. We always need you. But Lord God, we need you this morning and we desire you earnestly um, in your help to both teach and to hear uh, today's passage of scripture with the kind of clarity that you uh, require uh, for this season of Gospel Hope, as well as all those who may not be members of Gospel Hope, but are, are in attendance from various places. You have gathered an audience of your providential choosing. And I pray, O oh God, that um, you would, for the occasion of your glory and for their edification, uh, Lord God, let there be a demonstration of your presence and power among us as we walk through this text. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as you heard Pastor Ryan already mention, uh, we have been working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so whether you have been here for every uh, message or whether or not this is your first or maybe a second, we probably need to catch you up because we are all the way over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so the message or the series title is messy. It's messy because the Corinthian church, obviously, based on some of the information we're getting from the Apostle Paul, was an incredibly messy church. And uh, among the many things that they messed up, uh, the gifts was one of them. And that's what we're going to be taking a look at today. And consider how profoundly they must have messed up the gifts, because even today, this idea of tongues still causes certain people to sit on the edges of their seat. I can only imagine that some of you here right now are waiting just to see what I'm going to do with this. Uh, it may be a determinant factor in whether or not you continue to attend Gospel Hope. It may cause you to say amen, or it may cause you to stomp your feet and run out of here. Uh, but nevertheless, we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, and while we're making our way there, why? Well, what, what's going on and why was chapter 14 necessary? What is its unique contribution to the larger narrative that Paul has been hammering out or been, been writing over the last uh, several chapters for us? Well, uh, the Corinthian saints had just kind of made it their trend to almost twist every sacred thing that God had given them. You think about it as early as chapter 1, they twisted the meaning of baptism, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the very opening uh, uh, letters or phrases of the book, had to tell them that, listen, your salvation and your credibility in the body is not contingent on who might have baptized you. Some of you were baptized by Paul, some were baptized by Apollo, some are saying you were baptized by Cephas, and some are saying you baptized another person. And Paul says, I'm so glad I didn't baptize any of you with the exception of this one particular household, because no matter who performed the actual baptism, it is who you were baptized to that matters most. But this church, this immature church, had managed to twist the meaning of baptism. Rather than it being a public expression of devotion to God, it became a personal expression of one-upsmanship. How can I be better than you based on the person that I align myself with? As the chapters continue, we continue to see Paul in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 having to iron out all kinds of sacred things that the Corinthian saints have twisted. 
They twisted what to do with their physical, physical bodies. They had twisted their marital relationship. They had twisted um, um, sanctification. They twisted their Christian liberties and the freedoms that they have and made it something just about them rather than how to effectively serve others. They twisted communion and made it a, a, a feast or a festival about gluttony and drunkenness rather than celebrating the Lord together with one another. They twisted something as sacred and holy as even the gifts. And so two weeks ago, or a couple of messages ago, we talked about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul gave us this uh, very comprehensive, one of the most comprehensive list of spiritual gifts that we have available to us in the Bible. And he opens that statement by saying, I don't want you to get it twisted. Here's what the gifts are all about. But then, like in no other chapter, the Apostle Paul puts both feet on the brakes, pulls up the emergency thing, and throws the car in the park and pulls over to the side of the road and, and puts on the four-way hazard lights and says, I want to talk to you real quick in chapter 13 about love. Before I go any further about this whole idea of how you've twisted the gifts, I want to talk to you about love. And so he parks the bus there, and he then begins to just unpack for us, as Pastor Ryan did last week, why love is such an essential thing for you not to get twisted. Before I go any further in your specific message you've created around the gifts, let's talk about love. And then once he concludes that chapter about how selfless rather than selfish or selfish love is, he then marches into exposing how they've actually twisted the gift of tongues. And so this is where we find ourselves now is how do we untwist this idea of tongues? Well, in order to untwist tongues, I figured I would give us a tongue twister. And so this is actually the point of today's message, and that is this. Regardless of which gift God has graced you with, you should govern your gift with gospel etiquette. This is the point of today's message. Regardless of which of the gifts God has graced you with, you should govern that gift with gospel etiquette. I'll say it one or two more times because it's fun and it's a tongue twister and I just like it. Regardless of which of the gifts you've been graced with, you are to govern that gift with gospel etiquette. <clears throat> All right. Regardless of which one of the gifts you've been graced with, you are to govern that gift with gospel etiquette. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. All right. And so what is gospel etiquette? I mean, is that a, a special towel on the, on, the, on the arm of a man dressed in a tux, or is it, is it to curse? Is it to bow? What is gospel etiquette actually? Well, I believe that there are, in these four paragraphs that range from verses 1 to 25, we're going to learn at least four aspects of gospel etiquette that I believe should govern the way that we utilize and express our gifts in the body. All right? And so those four expressions of gospel etiquette that should govern the gift, regardless of which one you have been graced with, are these, and they're going to help you follow the message, all right? Number one is devotion. There has to be a certain devotion to something if we're really moving with a gospel etiquette in the way that we are using our gift. And what we are to be devoted to, I'll unpack with greater detail in just a few moments. There also needs to not only be devotion, but there also needs to be a commitment to something distinctive, something distinctive. And I'm going to unpack what that distinctive is in just a few moments. Third, I believe that there is another aspect of gospel etiquette that is revealed in the text, and that is there needs to also be a commitment to development, a commitment to development. So devotion, distinction, and development. And then finally, I believe in the fourth paragraph of the text that we'll cover today, 
today that there also needs to be a commitment to a certain kind of demonstration, a certain kind of demonstration. All right. So just as we get ready to move through today's text, I get it. Probably with bated breath, there are many people on many different ends of the spectrum when it comes to this particular expression of the Holy Spirit. There are those of you in the room who are probably secessionists. Can you say secessionist? A secessionist is a person who believes that this particular gift ceased to operate, ceased to exist. Many of the gifts ceased to operate or exist uh, at the close of the first century or at least with the presentation of the completed canon. That is one of the beliefs that the, uh, that the, geese have, the, the, geese, the, the, the gifts have ceased, <laughs> which would make you a secessionist. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are in the room, potentially, and be proud of who you are, the obsessionist. The obsessionist. Those who have elevated the gift above all things and believe that we, one's even salvation is contingent on a demonstration of the gift. And, and if you are here, I would hope that I, both of you would be drawn, not necessarily to the middle, but be drawn to the text. Drawn to the text and what it has to say, I believe that this text speaks equitably uh, uh, into all of these things or to both of these things. And I believe that both the secessionist and the obsessionist view represent extreme ends of the spectrum. And, but an honest reading of this, these first 25 verses will probably bring us somewhere else. Um, let's do it. So it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 25, in the first five verses, let's read them, let's read them slow, let's read them hard, let's read them with intentionality. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why? This is, this is the driving phrase for the, for, the, for the remaining 24 verses. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts that you may, and especially that you may prophesy. Why? For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. God, for the one, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people, plural, for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak with tongues. He wants it for everybody, but even more that you prophesy. So the one who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in a tongue unless someone interprets so that the church, plural, may be built up. Over and over again throughout these four paragraphs, what you're going to discover is that there is a hard push, not away from tongues or not to speak negatively about tongues in any way, but a hard push to say, as a body, we need to pursue mass edification over my edification. I need to pursue mass edification over my edification. This is not a degradation or an evaluation of the gifts, but it is a call up to pursue mass edification over my edification. Try it again with the choreography. The, the gifts, this particular text is calling us to pursue mass edification over my edification with, with the appropriate accent. Some of y'all from other places, my, my. And it doesn't work when you go my. Right, it's just my, it's got to be my, my edification. All right. So with that, with that, with that, this is where we kind of unpack the first, the first point, right, which is there needs to be among us, in, in terms of gospel etiquette, a devotion to benefiting the, the bride of Christ. 
a devotion to benefit the bride of Christ. Now remember, the scriptures refer to the church as a body, but also as the bride. And then the apostle Paul says, coming out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 into the first verses, the first few words of chapter 14, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. There is a call to the church to be devoted to two things, the pursuit of love and the gifts themselves. Now, what's interesting and happening in the underlying language is that this call to pursue love means to literally chase after it, to chase after it as if you were trying to catch it, as if you were committed to it not getting away. Pursue love, to go after it hard. But at the same time, we are told with the same energy to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. The underlying, the underlying language, the word for earnest, is where we get the English word zeal. We are to go after zeal. So we are to zealously love hard and zealously desire the gifts. Make sure that you don't elevate one above the other. This is what devotion looks like. The reason that I point out the fact that the church is the Lord's bride is because a major part of gospel etiquette is to love the church the way God does. Listen to these words that many of us associate almost exclusively with weddings and the way husbands should love their wives. But, the, it, but, but what God is also doing is giving us this beautiful portrait of how Christ or he loves his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, the husbands are being called up because Christ is already loving like this. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the uh, water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy, but she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, gospel etiquette in the way I give, the way that I display my gifts is I'm supposed to deploy my gifts in the body with the same kind of devotion that Christ has for the bride. Now, if you can't get down with how much Christ loved the bride, think about when a man loves a woman. If you've ever seen a guy really devoted to his girl, if he gets, let's just say, a raise on the job, he doesn't automatically think about buying a new set of Jordans and golf clubs for himself. Any man that is really devoted to someone, he immediately gets blessed and thinks about how he might leverage that for his beloved. If you think about a mom, a dad, parents, grandparents, any person, even a person who is devoted to a pet, you're walking down the aisles in the grocery store and you see a ball with a bell in it, even though you're there for cereal and toothpaste, you're like, man, let me get this for, for Bridget. She would love to kick that around. Have you ever seen that? People who, people who love things, their whole life seems to be leveraged around how to benefit them. Whatever they get a hold of, grandparents buy homes with a backyard, not because they want to put a pool, but because they want to put a, a bounce house or some kind of thing for their grandkids to jump in. Have you noticed that when a, when a mother loves her children, she sits on the playground in the moment that she sees one of their little feet coming down the sliding board and is like, oh, no, he's got a hole in his bottom of his shoe. The first stop is we're going to leave here and go get you some more shoes. When you're devoted to something, you leverage your energy to its growth, development, and its building up and its benefit. We see it exemplified in all of our relationships. But I will say this, that if you have never felt so devoted to another person that when you received the benefit, you thought it was automatically supposed to be their benefit, you are a selfish person. 
So, we are called to pursue love with the same energy that we desire the gifts. Don't let one get away from the other. You heard me say it in times past, how ridiculously impotent would any of my personal spiritual gifts be if I only used them for me? Preach to myself in a car, on the way to church in the morning, but never share God's word with you? Teach myself in the shower, right? I mean, what? what? You, you understand what I'm saying? So the gifts, when they're at their best, are actively being deployed into the lives of others. They must be devoted, but not just displayed, but also done with a certain kind of love. When you're in love with something, you're always looking out for how to bless it. And the Bible tells us what these blessings should look like. It says uh, the gifts should be deployed with the upbuilding, the encouragement, and the consolation of the church in mind. Sometimes the church just needs different things. And I'm looking to love on the body in a way that addresses that specific need. We see this even in our, in our most horizontal relationships. Two people that really love one another. They, they walk up. Man, he looks thirsty. She looks hungry. So when you love something, you're deeply attentive to its needs and how you might be a blessing to it. Our prayer then, coming off of uh, devotion, this devotion to the body of Christ that we should have is this, that we would develop the same love or develop the same zeal to have God's heart as we are to see God's hand. This is one of the great issues that I have with the obsessionist, the person that loves the idea of seeing God's hand at work amongst the congregation, moving in the gifts but, not, but, but, but having disassociated the hand of God's power from the heart of God, which is that that body might be built up. Not just become some kind of bonanza of supernatural experiences. So, this is a great call of Scripture, that we would be people who have a devotion for the body, a devotion for the bride of Christ in the way we display our gifts. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Verses 6 through 12 have something else to say. It says, now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Hang on to those. If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or a harp, do not give a distinct note, how will anyone know what is played? What if, uh, excuse me, what, uh, even if a, a bugle gives, its, it gives an indistinct sound, who will ready themselves for battle? So with yourselves, if you with your tongue utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless uh, many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for a manifestation of the Spirit, for manifestations of the Spirit, here's what you need to be eager for also. Strive to excel in building up the church. We not only need to have a devotion to the building up or the benefit of the bride, but we also need to be committed to a distinctive contribution to the growth of the body, which will cause it to fulfill its highest purpose. We need to be committed to a distinctive contribution, a distinct contribution to the body 
that, w- that would cause it to fulfill its highest purpose. What do I mean by distinct? Notice how Paul enumerates that if you're going to come in amongst the body, and he doesn't demote tongues, he just says, listen, if you're going to come in amongst the body, and you got the gift of tongues, bring along with it the gift of interpretation. So when you're gathered together, you might give people specific revelation, knowledge, or prophecy, or teaching. The body has specific and distinct needs. I can't think of a greater moment in scripture than when, we, when actually tongues debuted on the scene in the first century church. Look with me in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 and I want you to be on the lookout for a distinct need that was being met by the display of this very powerful gift. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 13. Don't go to sleep. Don't glaze over. Here we go. You ready? When the day of Pentecost arrived, there were all together, they were all together in one place. Now, larger context, tons of nations had gathered. Groups of people from many different places had gathered there at the day of Pentecost, and the body of Christ was also there on one accord, and they were praying. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven uh, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as they appeared like fire to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is like the lobby of the book of Revelation, right? When you see every nation and tribe, right? So it's like the lobby of that place. Folks waiting to at the table for two, right? They're waiting for their number to get called or their buzzer to go off, right? All these people are gathered and God does not waste the moment. Look at what he does. And he says, and there were, and, and there were uh, uh, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, uh, Phrygia, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya come becoming all the way to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the what? The mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, and they were, as and said, they were drunk. Peter then stands up and says, this is not, this is not people who are drunk. This is actually the fulfillment of the scriptures that God said he would pour out his spirit on all nations and he would draw people to himself. Now I want you to see what's happening here. There is both an opportunity and an obstacle that the gifts were leveraged for for the benefit of the body. The opportunity was all these people of diverse cultures are gathered in one place. The obstacle is how do we get the gospel to them in their respective languages when we're just Galileans? They didn't see the obstacle. God saw the obstacle, and then he gave utterance as the Spirit would lead. So, so in the body, I don't care which gift you've been given, we need to govern it with gospel etiquette because God is always looking at the opportunity is at, at hand and the, gospel, and, the, and the obstacles that are in the way. And he wants to utilize us to offer a distinct contribution to sowing up that gap and advancing the gospel. 
I say this to you, this has nothing to do with tongues and every bit of how you deploy your respective gifts. When you see a gap, when you see an obstacle to the gospel, is that your cue to complain that this church doesn't have it together and you can't believe those guys stood up there and handled it like that? Is that, your, is that what gaps in the work of gospel hope say to you? Or do gaps in the work of gospel hope call you to contribute in distinctive ways to say, how can I be a part of dissolving obstacles for the gospel? That's what tongues did. That's what God was doing. That's the business of the gifts. It's seizing opportunity and dissolving obstacles for the gospel. The bewilderment was not the point of the passage. The gift itself was not the point of the passage. The beautiful ability to speak whatever they said and it was heard in all these languages, that wasn't the point of the passage. The point of the passage that each person heard the wonderful works of God in their native language. So the question that I ask is, while we may not be a city that is inundated with tons of folks coming in who, who don't speak English per se, or if we do, is there a language barrier among us? Is there something that we've gone to, to grow and to do and to speak that is foreign, that is alien to the outsider? That if I leverage my gift, I could seal up that gap. And so the call to be indistinctive in my contribution is this. It's exactly this. Understand this. If the, the, body, the, the Bible not only refers to the church as a bride, but also as a body, think about our bodies. There are certain moments when they need rest. Other moments when their primary need is for recreation. Other moments they need food. Other moments they need growth. They need vitamins. Like, like so, so just as diverse and, and cyclical as the the body, the physical body's needs are, so it is with the historic body of Christ. In this particular moment in history, the body of Christ, which was bereft of a completed New Testament canon, needed a way to convey in multiple languages the great truths of God that traditionally had been trapped within the Jewish vocabulary. But that dynamic still exists today. And we allow God, by his own leading, to pour out his spirit in his way to resolve those obstacles. But we need to be available to offer whatever we can in a given situation to advance the cause of the gospel. We need to make a distinctive, not a generic, but a distinct contribution to what God is doing. Let's take a look at verses 13 through 19. Verses 13 through 19, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue, um, speaks in a tongue, excuse me, excuse me. Therefore, Paul says, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he also may interpret. Did you hear that? He doesn't demote the gift. He says, all right, if you got it, then let's compound it. But for what purpose? If you've got, if one who speaks in a tongue should also pray that he may interpret. Why? Well, he told us in the first few verses that, that when but tongues plus interpretation equals prophecy, which is, this, which is like edifying the masses on turbo boost rather than just me. So he says, therefore, the one who speaks in the tongue should pray that he also may interpret. Verse 14, for if I pray in the tongue, my spirit prays, and my, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I am to pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will um, sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks in your with your spirit, how can anyone in a position of the outsider say amen to your thanks when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, 
But when the other person is not being built up, I thank God, the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Why does Paul say this? Because gospel etiquette calls us to govern our gifts in this way with a commitment to development. I want to constantly develop my capacity to be the most effective and efficient member possible when it comes to the role that I play in the body. I'm never just, I'm asking God to add to my gift. I want my gift to be compounded. Did you hear that? He says, if you got this, then ask for that. He wouldn't wouldn't instruct them to do so if it wasn't available to them. Why? Because increased capacity with the gifts is, well, an increased number of gifts is an increased capacity to serve. Pray for additional gifts. Pray for also their optimal use within the body. Just a couple of years ago, um, I was in the Dominican Republic, and uh, uh, Ryan was there as well as Manuel and Carlos and a few others. And we were out in this large touristy area in Santo Domingo. Many different people of many different types, uh, probably mostly Spanish speakers. And among them was a dog, a nice little mangy stray dog who took a liking to me. And uh, we made eye contact. I, I was like, I'm, me too, what's up? You know, I don't know, you're a Spanish-speaking dog. I don't know how this works. But anyway, so anyway... So the dog started to follow me in various places around Santa Domingo. And, uh, and so I was like, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm going to name you. I'm going to name you. And I said, I'm going to name you Buster. I'm going to name you Buster. I was like, that's a nice dog name, is it not? Buster. And so I would call to him. But then I said, you know what? Man, I'm, I'm in the Dominican Republic. That's such an American name. I want you to have a Spanish-sounding name. I'm going to call you Busto, right? <laughs> now, I, the people who probably speak Spanish are laughing the hardest because... I did not, and so here I am out here in, this, in, the, in the center, and I'm just calling this dog by its new Spanish name, Busto, Busto, you know, come, 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 and he's coming, and, and, it, and, and I'm enjoying it. It's very edifying for me, right? It's edifying for me because I'm getting what I want. My newfound friend in a foreign land is following me. We are both benefiting from this. But guess what's happening to the masses? The word Busto doesn't mean buster to Spanish speakers who are around. Maybe ask some of your Spanish-speaking friends afterwards what it actually means, but it was not very edifying what I was saying. And I was saying it loud, and I was saying it often, and I was saying it regularly, and I was saying it with frequency, and I was saying it with glee. But because I didn't have the gift of interpretation, because I didn't really know what I was saying, I was only edifying me. That was a Pentecostal ha-ha. I like that, Julie. Ha-ha. Yeah, I like that. I like what you did right there. She know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So ask your friends later what that word really meant. But, 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 here's, but here's just this, this analogy. Here it is. I'm doing something that I'm really enjoying, and it's really benefiting me, but it is somewhat of a burden for those around me. So one of the Spanish-speaking brothers came up to me, and he was like, Pastor Rod, you might just want to call him Buster. And I was like, no, that's very insensitive, and it's, it's not, I'm not being a, a, a good diversity partner to the dog by forcing this American name on him, Right? I'm going to call him his Spanish name, his Dominican name, right? He was like, well, I got to tell you, though, this is, and then he goes, this is what that means. And I was like, oh, that's what I've been saying the whole time? Again, ask those next to you, Google it after the sermon. Don't, 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 get, you, don't get caught with your head down trying to figure out what it means. So anyway, 
But I needed to commit, if I really wanted to edify, if I really wanted to edify, I need to commit to constant development, not only to your development, but also developing my craft and adding to my gift. And what can I do, right? I, I can go to school, I can read books and do this kind of stuff. But the Bible says something that every one of us can do, uh, right? And it says in 2 uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, by his divine power, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, right? He's given us all things we need. By which he has granted us, uh, granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from corruption that is in the world because of the sinful nature. For this very reason, make every effort. That's a lot. That's zealous, right? That's hardcore. That's pursuing. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and add and virtue with knowledge, and then take knowledge and add to it self-control and self-control with supplement that with steadfastness and supplement that with godliness and supplement godliness with brotherly affection and supplement that with love for these qualities are yours and are increasing they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ ladies and gentlemen we ought to be developing supplementing complementing and adding to our gifts of the spirit the fruit of the spirit did you see the overlay these are obviously the fruit of the Spirit. So, so if I take responsibility for saying, man, every gift, I, I want to leverage my gift in a way that is selfless, that is loving, that is, just, that is just dripping and saturated with brotherly love and self-control. And if, it's, if, 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 if my display of the gift is dripping with self-control, then I, then, then I won't stand up and speak in a language that you don't understand and say, well, I'm just being led by the Spirit. Because if I'm being led by the Spirit, I'll bring both the gifts and the fruit. Who's that? Who's that? That's you. All right. Just checking. I like that. Again, our commitment to development is just I want to increase my capacity to be the most effective and efficient member. I don't take my gift for granted I'm not just leisurely plugging it in. Lord, you've given me this. How do I use this for the greatest benefit to the local body? Because I know that this is so much bigger than just me. We need to commit to compounding our gifts with the, the gifts of the Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit. That's what it looks like to be committed to development. Finally, the Apostle Paul calls us to the fourth and final point in this paragraph which we said in our uh, earlier uh, outline, was a demonstration. Well, what kind of demonstration specifically represents gospel etiquette? Well, here you go. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written by, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. Wait, wait, wait. First of all, if everybody's speaking with tongues and an outsider or an unbeliever comes in, and they, will they not say that you are all out of your minds? But if all prophesy, right, 
and an unbeliever or, or an outsider enters in, will he not be convicted by all and count to, called to account by all? And the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You see the parallel between what happened at the day of Pentecost? People will come in and go, oh my goodness, that really spoke to me. No, no, it spoke to me in my language. I hope that on a regular basis as we stand up here and preach to you, that you get spoke to. Not, not because you heard my points, but that the Holy Spirit starts to unpack something and deliver some mail to your address with your name on it. That you know undeniably that you have been in the presence of God. Not because it was said with all with the letter D's or it was well alliterated or, or properly exegeted or you got all these historical facts. I hope that you are receiving mail delivered to you, for you, specifically for you. I hope that you are experiencing a demonstration of God's obvious presence. Because that's what the body, when it gathers, is to be about. Can there be a demonstration of God's presence? A demonstration of God's presence in the local body is symbolic of three things. Two of them readily disclosed on the surface of the text, and which, which is this. He says that one is a sign for unbelievers. There's a sign for unbelievers, which means that the church is expected to be a place where unbelievers can come and see some evidence that God is amongst his people. That there's also the church is obviously for, so that we don't tip that cart too far in, the, in that direction. The church is also has signs that are for believers. There's also supposed to be benefit and, and, and building up of the believers themselves. But then here's the other sign, a sign of great maturity. Here's the sign of maturity. When my gifts, I recognize that my gifts ought to play a role in enriching the believer and engaging the unbeliever. That's when I have become mature in my thinking and when I become gospel-centered in my gift management is this gift that I have is intended both for the enrichment of the body and for the engagement of the unbeliever. One of the greatest demonstrations of all time uh, of God's presence in this way is not just found in the gift, but actually in the work of God. It has always been the business of God that there be a clear demonstration of his presence amongst his people. As early as the Garden of Eden, the Bible made sure that we knew that he walked amongst them in the cool of the day. God wanted there to be obvious evidence of his presence. And even when we ruin the party and God says, I'm out of here, I don't want to play with y'all no more. The Bible says that at Jesus' birth announcement, right, at his pre-shower, the angel showed up and said, you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God among us. God has always been interested in being among his people. Even in the construction and the furnishing and the way that he had them to set up in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple. And so even today in the church, God is committed to there being a demonstration, an obvious evidence of his presence among us. And so these are the gospel ethics. This is gospel etiquette. How can we have a demonstration of the Spirit? It's not one that we have to conjure. It's just one that we have to be committed to. Or will we love each other in a way that we want to build one another up? And will we love one another and build one another up in such a way that every joint is doing what it's supposed to do, and as a result of that supply, the church grows, which means that people from outside of it come into it because God says, you know what, I can trust y'all with some growth. And so the demonstration of God's presence, the greatest of all time, is obviously not only in the coming of Christ, but also in his death, burial, and resurrection. 
Consider, if you will, what the death, burial, and resurrection, at the core of the gospel, what is being said, that God came with a very specific devotion. It didn't say he casually rolled into town. It says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. The coming of Christ is a statement of devotion. This is the gospel etiquette. It's that we are called to then love one another the same way. So not only does Jesus Christ come with this great gospel etiquette and this demonstration of God's heart toward his people because he's devoted, but then he even comes to solve a distinct problem. Jesus didn't just die on the cross as a martyr to be hung up in the halls of history with everybody else. The Bible says that he came to die in our place, on our behalf. It was necessary to satisfy the, the, the wrath of God against us, and then was raised in victory over sin, death, and the devil, saving us from our sins for his glory to do good works to himself. Like, I mean, the gospel is filled with distinct specificity of what God came to do in our lives. Therefore, the gifts that he gave us ought to also make a distinctive contribution. The Bible goes forward to show that, 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 that not only was Jesus committed to saving his people, he didn't just blow out of town like a great cowboy who has shot him up, right? But the Bible shows us he also sent the Holy Spirit for our what? Development. Our ongoing cultivation and development so that we would be enriched by teachers, so we'd be built up and encouraged by one another. So God, from start to finish, is committed to this, to this right here. So this is, gospel etiquette isn't something that we're being asked to do, but he did it first and he did it foremost. And so... If I really understand the gospel and let that undergird or govern the way that I use my gift, I should expect there to be an obvious demonstration of God's presence among us. Enriching the believer and in engaging the unbeliever. Use your gift that way. Uh, praise team, y'all can come on. I'm getting ready to pray um, for us. I pray that, uh, man, if you've been sitting on the sidelines, just kind of enjoying the show, you love gospel hope, you think it's cool, you think the preaching is all right, you love the comfort of the chairs. You, what all the, I want to encourage you to come out of the, off of the chairs, and I want to I encourage you to, 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 to get moving, to, to deploy your gift, to, to find a way to build up the body, to console it, right? To, to, to let something of God be revealed through you. I hope that you would see that, that, that you, you can grow in your devotion to in your love for the body because the gift, it is for you, but it is, it is ultimately for all of us. I need your gift. There, there is something about Rod Dewberry that is less than what it should be because it has yet to encounter your gift. And so I just pray that uh, every ounce of whatever is true from today's message, I want to pray for us will be true in us, not just true on this paper. Father, in the name of Jesus, I come, and I'm thankful to you that you first and foremost demonstrated your great love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I pray, oh God, that gospel etiquette, that gospel ethics, that gospel passion, that gospel truth would saturate us. And as it saturates us, it wouldn't just cause us to, to woo or to amen or just to savor your most excellent greatness, but it would also call us to act. Lord, show me how to deploy this into the lives of your beloved church. Lord God, every one of us 
Lord God, if we're insecure or uncertain about who we are and what we are, Lord God, would you, would you just call us to just at least start living out the fruit and you'll let the evidence of the gift come on your timing and on your agenda. Lord God, I pray for the person here today who may not know you, who came in among us just to see what this was all about, begrudgingly drugged by a family member or perhaps invited by a friend, but really has no taste for the things of the gospel. I pray, oh God, that that person was met by your presence today in a way, oh God, that is above and beyond anything that I might say, that their faith would not rest in the words of men, but in a clear demonstration of your power, as you said over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let there be a demonstration of your power, Lord God, that enriches your people and engages the unbeliever that draws them just a little bit closer. Lord God, this is our earnest prayer in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.